Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We are beginning this morning in Revelation chapter 8. I am hopeful that we will find a reasonable place to stop since next Sunday is Resurrection Sunday and we'll be having our communion and communion teaching next week. There are several things that I would like to point out in this chapter because I keep saying to you that the book of Revelation is a very Jewish book and that the better you know your Old Testament, the more sense you can make out of the book of Revelation. And so I'm going to be pointing out several things this morning that are Old Testament practices, Old Testament declarations and prophecies that all are the underpinning of what John is witnessing and writing here in chapter 8. In chapter 7 and chapter 6, we have seen the successive six seals opened, and with each of those six seals, we have seen God progressively pouring out times of trouble, difficulty, tribulation here on the planet, And so chapter 6 and 7 are kind of a synopsis of Daniel's 70th week. When we got to the sixth seal, there was a pause. And during that pause, there was a remnant of Israel, 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, that were marked and sealed by an angel of God before the angels stopped the four winds and began scorching the earth. And then there was a multitude in heaven which no man could count, of every kindred, tribe, tongue, nation. Therefore, we conclude that that is the church. So we've seen 144 specific thousand people, and we've seen a great multitude. And then chapter 8 begins, and when? I'm not going to be able to get any further than the first word. Because the first word of chapter 8 is the word and. Now, we've been seeing this a lot. We're going to see it a lot more. It is a literary device that John is using to demonstrate that he is writing sequentially. What he has seen is what he has written in sequence. Because he keeps using this little Greek word, kai, which means and. Sometimes he says, and then. Sometimes he says, and when. Both of those are sequential statements so that he is saying, I saw this, then I saw this, then I saw this, then I saw this. There is an approach to the book of Revelation that is called the recapitulation theory. The recapitulation theory states that in the book of Revelation, you will see the same information seven times. I don't agree with that. I think that John's language, especially if you take away the chapter and verse divisions, it's very clear that John is telling you through this literary device that he is using, he's telling you that he is writing sequentially what he saw. I saw that. And then I saw that, and then I saw that, and then I saw that. My biggest difficulty with the recapitulation theory is that it separates chapter 19 and chapter 20 of the book of Revelation. And yet, pretty much every new sentence, John starts with, and then, and then, and then, all the way through chapter 19 and chapter 20, demonstrating that he is writing those verses Sequentially, these are the things that he saw. This happened, that happened, that happened, that happened, that happened. We see that sequential type of writing demonstrated here again at the beginning of chapter 8. After this happened, 
Then that happened. And then I saw, and then that took place. So keep that in your head because for this middle section of the book of Revelation, which means, by the way, we're about a third of the way through it. There are 22 chapters. We've gone through seven of those chapters. We're roughly a third of the way through it. But this next third of the book of Revelation is filling in detail into the outline that we have already received in chapter 6 and chapter 7. So some of it is going to sound familiar as John is filling in the blanks, adding detail. But it's also pretty dark. This is the kind of stuff that when you think of the book of Revelation, this is what you think of. The stuff we're about to start reading. God pouring out wrath on the planet. But then, if you can stick through that, the last third of the book is just glorious and wonderful and reassuring. So the next couple of weeks are going to be the bad news to make the good news all that much gooder, if that is an adjective. It is now, because I used it. So So chapter 8 begins, and when he broke the seventh seal. Oh, there's that seventh seal. In chapter 6 and 7, we saw the opening of six seals. Now there is finally the seventh seal open. And at that moment, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Now, how you interpret that is based on which commentary you're reading or who you're listening to, because the simple truth is nobody knows definitively what that half hour of silence in heaven is meant to signify. John didn't tell us. John just simply observed it. Sequentially, after the six seals, after the sealing of the 144,000, after the great multitude worshiping God in the heavens, after all that had passed, the seventh seal was opened. And that seventh seal opening is going to bring about the next sequence of trumpets. And then, after six of those, we're going to see the beginning of the sequence of the vials or the bowls. So this is a pattern in the book of Revelation. But this moment of silence in heaven is just massively interesting to me that John would observe that and write it down because he has just seen an overview of Daniel's 70th week and he is about to hear the seven trumpets and the wrath of God is going to begin really ramping up. You don't want to be on planet Earth while this stuff is happening. And in fact, when the trumpets are being blown, there are actually angels saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. The same way they said, holy, holy, holy to God, they start saying, whoa, to the people on earth, because God is now pouring out wrath on his enemies. And so before all that, after the overview of Daniel's 70th week, before the actual wrath of God is poured out, what we've been seeing even during God's wrath is that there's continual worship of God in heaven. No matter what God does, he is surrounded by throngs and angels and elders and living creatures who are praising him for who he is and what he's like and continually worshiping him regardless of what he's doing. Now, by any human comprehension or human opinion of what God's doing, we would say, wow, that's really rough, God. You are really angry right now. Is this humane, what you're doing at this moment? And yet in God's domain, he has people around him the whole time singing and worshiping and praising him because he is pouring out his righteous judgment the same way that he said he was going to since the beginning of time. So the heavenly host see it as the appropriate culmination of everything God is and everything God has already said. Only human beings on earth undergoing the wrath of God have anything contentious to say about it but all God's people and God's creatures and God's angels worship him even as he pours out his wrath. But before all that happens, there's a moment of silence. 
All of a sudden, all that worshiping, all that praising we read about last week, all that singing, all that glorifying God that's going on in heaven, suddenly there's about the space of a half hour, John says, where it just got quiet. It's almost like setting the stage. It's almost like the calm before the storm. It's like, okay, silence in heaven because God himself is about to pour out his wrath. And when he broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. This is the beginning of the sequence of the trumpets. In the same way as we saw one seal open and then things happened and then the second seal was opened and then other things happened. Same thing here with each trumpet blast, with each angel that stands to blow the trumpet, John sees yet another thing sequentially that God is doing in heaven and on earth. But then starting in verse 3, we're introduced to an altar of incense that is in heaven before the throne of God. None of us, being 21st century Gentiles, none of us react automatically to the idea of an altar of incense. It's just not part of our life. But to any thoroughgoing Jew, especially in the first century, when the temple is still standing, Anybody who knows their Old Testament, their Tanakh, anybody who knows the worship of God that has gone on in the tabernacle in the wilderness, anybody who understands that God has what he refers to as a holy of holies, the Kodesh Kodeshim, the holiest place where the high priest would meet with God, to any of them, all of that would come resonating back to them the minute that they hear about an altar of incense. So since we don't know about the altar of incense, we're going to spend the next 20 minutes or so, okay, three hours, we're going to spend the next little while talking about the altar of incense so that we can get some sense of why God would have an altar of incense in heaven, specifically sitting in front of his throne. When God was speaking to Moses and explaining to him how he should build the tabernacle in the wilderness, God also told him every piece of furniture, everything that should be built, everything to be constructed, and then where it was going to sit inside the tabernacle in the wilderness. And God was that specific Because the writer of Hebrews is going to tell us, we're going to read it this morning, that these things were all types and foreshadows of the true worship in heaven. So now John is in heaven, and he is seeing the worship that's going on in heaven, and he sees an altar of incense. But the altar of incense stood as one of the pieces of furniture that God was very particular about, it stood in the tabernacle in the wilderness because it was a type. It was a foreshadow of what was actually happening in heaven. It was not just an arbitrary piece of furniture. It didn't exist just because they needed a place to burn stuff. It existed because God himself has an altar of incense before his throne in heaven. Let's start in Exodus 25. Oh, don't go there. Go to Exodus 30. I'll just read Exodus 25, 40 to you. That's the place where God says to Moses, see that you make all this furniture that I have taught you, that I have shown you. Make sure that you make them after the pattern that I've given you which was shown to you on the mountain. It's a really important point that God himself told Moses how all the furniture was to be built, how big it was going to be, what its specific function and purpose was, and then where it was going to be positioned inside the tabernacle in the wilderness. So starting in Exodus 30, verse 1, here is his instruction for the altar of incense. 
Moreover, you shall make an altar as a place for burning incense, and you shall make it of acacia wood. Its length shall be a cubit, and its width a cubit. It shall be a square. And its height shall be two cubits. Its horns shall be of the same piece. And you shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and its sides all around, and its horns. And you shall make a gold molding all around for it. And you shall make two gold rings for it under its molding. And you shall make them on its two side walls on opposite sides. And they shall be holders for the poles with which you carry it. Every piece of furniture in the tabernacle in the wilderness was made to be portable because as Israel traveled through the wilderness for their 40 years after they'd come out of Egypt, God would lead them through that pillar of cloud. And when the cloud moved, they had to pick up and move. So everything in the tabernacle had to be portable, movable. But everything that was sanctified to God, everything that was separated to God was now a holy object, which meant that humans couldn't touch it. Humans can't lay their hands on it. So the way that God arranged for these things to be moved was that he said, and put rings on both sides of it so that you can put a pole through it so that you can pick up the pole to pick up the furniture to carry it, but don't touch the furniture because it is holy furniture and you, after all, are corrupt human beings. It's like God saying, don't touch my stuff. And of course, some people attempted it, and God killed them. You shall make poles of acacia wood, says verse 5, and you will overlay them with gold. And you shall put this altar in front of the veil that is near the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is over the testimony where I will meet with you. Okay, that is the most holy object in the entire tabernacle in the wilderness. The tabernacle in the wilderness is just a tent. It's got poles and staves and rings and curtains. So it's a four-sided tent. But then within that four-sided tent, there's an even smaller tent that is known as the holiest place. What makes it the holiest place is that the Ark of the Covenant is in it. On that Ark of the Covenant is the mercy seat. On the mercy seat, there are two angels and their wings wrap around them and meet in the middle. And that's the place where God would come and meet with the high priest once a year. And the high priest had to come in with sacrificial blood. And he had to sprinkle the blood in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And if God was pleased with the sacrifice, he would come and meet with the high priest on the Day of Atonement. Actually, that word is plural. It would be the Day of Atonements, because first the priest had to atone for himself before he could even go into the holiest place. And then he would atone for Israel. And right there, by that holiest place, in that holiest place, next to the holiest object, right there is the altar of incense. So it is also a really reverential piece of furniture. You shall put this altar in front of the veil that is near the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will meet with you. Aaron the high priest shall burn fragrant incense on it. He shall burn it every morning when he trims the lamps. And when Aaron trims the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense. There shall be continual incense before Yahweh throughout your generations. And you shall not offer any strange incense on this altar or any burnt offering, or any grain offering. You shall not pour out any drink offering on it. There was an altar specifically made for sacrificing animals, the place where you would pour out your drink offerings, where you would bring your grain and your sheave and your wave offerings. And God says, this altar is not for that. It's only for one thing. Morning and night, you make sure that the incense is burning on it 
that I prescribe. Don't burn any other incense on it. Only the incense that I have told you to burn, do it morning and night. In other words, God, for his own reasons, has decided that in his holiest place and in his tabernacle, there's going to be the continual smell of incense, the continual smoke of burning incense in his holiest place. God laid out the details, how big it was going to be, what should be burned on it, what shouldn't be burned on it, when they should burn it, morning and evening. The only thing God left out was, why? (laughs) He didn't bother to tell anybody why. He just said, do that. And of course, the proper response when God says do it, the proper response is, yes, sir. sir. (laughs) If that's what you want, that's what we're doing. Morning and evening when Aaron comes in to trim the lamps, he's going to burn incense. And this is continual throughout their generations. Verse 9 says, you shall not offer any strange incense on this altar because God is very jealous for this altar. No burnt offering, no grain offering, no drink offering. Verse 10, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. In other words, It needs to be set aside as holy with sacrificial blood. Once a year, Aaron, when he sacrifices, he will dip the blood on the horns of this altar so that it is perpetually holy to God. It's my altar. Don't you touch it. Don't you burn your stuff on it. Don't you decide for yourself, this is mine. And once a year, you continue to sanctify it, to make it holy to put the blood of the sacrifice on it. He shall make atonement on it with the blood of the sin offering of atonement once a year throughout your generations. It is most holy to Yahweh. Now, when God himself says, this is mine, this is separate. That's what that word holy essentially means. This is Sinless, it belongs to me and me alone. Therefore, it's not yours. You don't get to make up what you're going to do with it. You don't get to pretend that you know better than I know. This is mine. It is sanctified to me. You do exactly with it what I said to do with it because it is most holy to Yahweh. That's the altar of incense. Why? Well, then John comes along. He's in heaven And what does he see before the throne of God? The altar of incense. Suddenly we're getting an answer to why. Because this is a type. This is a shadow of what really is going on in heaven. For 1,400 years, the Israelites kept the altar of incense. Morning and night. Every year, sanctifying it, separating it to God. Every year, without knowing why, John is beginning to pull back the curtain and say, and this is why. In a moment, we're going to find out from the book of Revelation what that altar of incense is used for. Interestingly, Leviticus 16.12 tells us that the fire that is used to burn the incense on the altar of incense is always taken from the altar of burnt offering that's outside the sanctuary. You can read about that in Leviticus 16. So in other words, even the fire that is used to burn the incense, you can't just walk in and strike a match or flick a bick. You can't walk in and just... I just dated myself with that, didn't I? (laughs) Flick a bick, you probably have no idea what... No, no idea, no. Fine, I'm not going to tell you. You go home and look it up on Google. The fire that was on the altar for burning the incense had to be the fire of the burnt offerings that were outside the tent in front of the door. And you had to take some of the coals from that altar, take it to the altar of incense, use that to burn the incense of God. When we get to the book of Revelation... You're going to see a very similar thing as the coals of the altar that we now know are sacrificial coals. Those coals are going to be cast down to the earth in order to begin the burning of God on the planet. 
Now, I read for you just a moment ago out of Exodus 30, the fact that God said, don't burn any strange incense. In other words, don't put any other incense on it but the incense that I've prescribed for it. In Leviticus 10, starting at verse 1, we read about Nadab and Abihu, or Abihu, whichever way you want to pronounce that. They were the sons of Aaron, and because they were the sons of the high priest, apparently they got to thinking that they could kind of do God's things the way they decided. And so they decided to improve on God's mixture, and they brought in strange incense, incense of their own formulation. And God was so pleased with their improvement on his plan that he dropped them dead. Because you don't mess with what God says is mine. Leviticus 10.1, Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans and put fire in them. And then they placed incense on it and offered strange fire before Yahweh, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of Yahweh and consumed them, and they died before Yahweh. In other words, once God says, do it my way, he's real serious about it. There's no wiggle room. There's no place where God says, unless you have a better idea. He says, this is what you bring to me. This is how you sacrifice before me. This is how you worship me. This is the priest. This is what the priest wears. This is the blood the priest brings with him. This is the day, the time, the clothing, the person. God is very specific about how you approach him, which is why Jesus could walk on the planet and say things like, I'm the way. I'm the truth, I'm the life, no man comes to the Father but by me. Because the same God who is this specific about the mixture of incense is the same God who's very specific about you only approach me through my son. Well, the end of what we were reading is that Moses then goes to Aaron because Aaron has just lost two sons instantly. God dropped them dead, burned them with fire. And Moses goes to Aaron and basically says to him, you can't be upset about that because they knew better. Moses says to Aaron, it is what Yahweh spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be glorified. So Aaron kept silent. Aaron had no room to complain because Moses said to him, look, this is exactly what God said. God said, don't bring a strange fire. Then they brought a strange fire. What did you think? Did you think God would just say, oh, whatever. Silly boys, come get your noogies. No, poor boy. No, instead God says, everybody who approaches me must first know, must first recognize that I am holy. And you don't approach me any other way. I will be treated as holy. Now, in this instance, part of God's holiness is that he expects his people to do his things his way. And you don't get an option to do it any other way. So, once again, if that God says you don't approach me any other way than through Christ, through my son, then that's it. The subject's closed. Doesn't matter how much you want to debate. Well, there's many ways to God. There's many pathways to God. It's really a matter of whether you're sincere or not. You can be sincere as the day is long and be sincerely wrong. Nadab and Abihu, I don't think, were trying to stir up the anger of God. I think they were just trying to bring their participation, their improvement their opinion to the worship of God. And God ain't having it because his altar of incense is completely holy to him because it serves a function, it serves a purpose, and more importantly, it's his. Come on, every one of you who have kids, or in your case, grandkids, 
I'm sure that there's things, let's say, like in your bedroom. That's the bedroom that belongs to the grown-ups, the adults. And if one of your kids wanders into your bedroom and starts messing with something that belongs to you and then, I don't know, loses it or something, are you just going to look the other way and go, oh, well, silly kids? No, you're going to teach them a very valuable lesson, which is, that was mine. And because it was mine, it wasn't yours. And you had no right to play with it. You had no right to try. You had no right to be in that room. You're going to teach them that because that's how you raise obedient children. Same thing with God. That's mine. You don't touch it. You don't improve on it. You don't bring strange fire to it because it has a function and a purpose in my own worship of myself. Therefore, you do it my way. So then the writer of Hebrews picks up on that. I'm going to be reading from Hebrews 8 and then a bit of Hebrews 9 if you want to read along. The writer of Hebrews is, stop me if this is too complicated, a Hebrew. And he's writing to an audience of Hebrews, hence the name Hebrews. Which means that the writer and the audience would be familiar with the furniture of the tabernacle in the wilderness. And they would know the holiest place. And they would know the Ark of the Covenant. And they would know that right in front of that Ark of the Covenant is the altar of incense of continual burning, continual sense, continual sweet savors raising up to the nostrils of God. And so the writer of Hebrews, starting in chapter 8, verse 1, says... Now, the main point in what's being said is this. That's good. He got right to the conclusion. I appreciate that. He's not as circuitous as I am. He got right to it. Now, the main point in what is being said is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. I'm not teaching through the book of Hebrews right now, but that's an astounding statement. After 1,400 years of high priests going into the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of the Atonements, and every day making sure that there was incense rising up to God, the writer of Hebrews is arguing that we Christians also have a high priest. We have a better high priest who's based on better sacrifices, who has a better promise. And our high priest, since the job of a high priest is to intercede on behalf of the people, which is why the high priest would go in once a year and make atonements and pour blood to God on behalf of the people. So he's interceding with God on behalf of the people. And if God was pleased, he would come as a pillar of smoke and land would light between the wings of the angels on the caparith on the mercy seat. Okay, that's that kind of high priest. But we who believe in Jesus Christ, we, the church, have been given a better high priest because our high priest doesn't need to go into the holy of holies that's made with the hands of men. He goes into the holiest place in heaven. He goes to the very throne of God and intercedes on our behalf. And rather than having the blood of goats and bulls, he has his own blood. He goes in and pleads his own sacrifice, his own finished work to cleanse the sins of all his people. That's our high priest, which makes me want to look back at the 1400 years of Old Testament high priests and say, yeah, top that. We've got a high priest that goes right to the throne room of God. He goes to the throne of majesty in the heavens. Verse 2, he is a minister in the holy places and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, the Lord built, and not man. So he's comparing the true heavenly tabernacle to the tabernacle in the wilderness, which was pitched by men. After God gave them instruction on how to build it, it was still men that built it. It still had its faults. But the true tabernacle in heaven 
is the, the antitype of the type of the tabernacle in the wilderness. Therefore, everything in the tabernacle in the wilderness speaks and teaches for 1,400 years about what the true tabernacle in heaven is like. And the same way that the tabernacle in the wilderness had a high priest and sacrifice, the true tabernacle in heaven has a high priest, Jesus Christ, and has a sacrifice, his own life, and has an altar of incense. Verse 3 of Hebrews 8, every high priest, he's talking about human high priests, every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it is necessary that our high priest, Jesus, also has something to offer. Now, if he were here on earth, if he was a continuation of the Aaronic priesthood, if he were here on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. So there's nothing for Jesus to do to improve on the Aaronic priesthood. That already exists, and they're already doing the sacrifices. So if he was here on earth, he wouldn't have anything to do. Plus, by the way, he's not even from the right tribe. He's not from the tribe of Levi. He's not one of the Levites, and therefore he can't be a priest. He's of the tribe of Judah. And yet, he is the heavenly high priest in contrast to the earthly high priest. And if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve, get this in verse 5, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. All those things that were in the tabernacle in the wilderness our types, our shadows, are a copy of what's going on in heaven. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, God said to him, see that you make all these things according to the pattern that was shown to you in the mountain. Why was God so specific about the pattern? Why did God give him all the dimensions and then expect him to follow the dimensions? Because these things were types and shadows that were teaching the true things that were going on in heaven. You get that? I just want you to see that I didn't make that up. A Hebrew writing to Hebrews explains to us that 1,400 years of the tabernacle in the wilderness was actually teaching what's actually going on in heaven. And by the way, I know right now there's somebody on the internet typing furiously to me. I know the tabernacle in the wilderness did not last 1,400 years. It was transferred by David and Solomon to the temple, but even the temple had a holy place, and inside the holy place was the holiest of holies where there was an altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant. So when I say 1,400 years, I'm talking about the time of that mode of worship among the Israelites. You can stop typing now, back away from the keyboard, I get it. Make sure that you make all these things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. But now he, Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. So all of the Old Testament priests and high priests were all pointing toward Christ and all of the furniture of the Old Testament in the tabernacle and in the temple was all pointing to heaven to come, the heavenly worship. And then John shows up, book of Revelation, he's in heaven and what does he see? An altar before God and an altar of incense exactly like God had typified through all the Israelite history. Are you getting this yet? I'm just trying to drive this point home to you that these are not novelties in the book of Revelation. These are things that have a long, rich, deep Israelite history. And any Jew reading this very Jewish book of Revelation, when they read about an altar of incense, would immediately hearken back to, oh yeah, that's the holiest place and the holiest objects. 
Hebrews 9. I'm just going to read five verses. Hebrews 9, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for divine worship and the earthly sanctuary, that tabernacle in the wilderness or that temple. There were regulations for that worship. For a tabernacle was equipped this way. There was an outer sanctuary in which were the lampstand, the table of showbread, and the sacred bread itself that sat on that table that is called the holy place. That's that outer court within the outer tent. Verse 3 says, Behind the second veil, which means you're stepping into the holiest of holies, there was a tabernacle which is called the most holy place, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a jar, a golden jar, holding the manna and Aaron's staff which budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the atoning cover. But about these we cannot speak in any great detail right now. I actually wish the writer of Hebrews had had the time to go ahead and go into some of that. But the reason I think that he spoke about these things in shorthand was because the audience he's writing to knows all this. But notice where he placed the altar of incense. It's in the Holy of Holies right in front of the Ark of the Covenant. This is the holiest place. These are the holiest objects. These are the holiest things. This is the stuff that is set aside specifically for God. Okay, let's answer the question, why? Why is there an altar of incense in the holiest of holies and before God? Sitting in front of God at this moment, there is an altar of incense which is continually burning continually being stoked with the incense that God expects. Our first clue comes from Psalm 141, the very first verse. You don't need to turn there. I'll read it to you. O Yahweh, says David, I call upon you. Hasten to me or listen to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. May my prayer be established like incense before you, the lifting up of my hands as the evening offering. Okay, what's the morning and the evening offering? The morning and the evening offering are sacrifices that are made in the tabernacle, and then the coals of that sacrifice are taken in to burn incense before God. David knows all that and says, my prayers are like that incense. And my sacrifice, my evening sacrifice, is like my lifting up of my hands to you. So even as David prays to God, as he worships God, as he raises his hands to God, and then as he prays out loud to God, he likens that to what's going on in the tabernacle of sacrifices in the evening. And those sacrifices stoking the coals that burn the incense that raise that fragrance to God. And David likens it to his prayers. So then, turn to Revelation, if you're, if you're not already there. And let's turn back to Revelation chapter 5, <clears throat> verse 8. Because now John is going to confirm what David has already explained, part of the typology Part of the reason for the constant incense before God is that it is typifying the prayers of the saints that are going up continually before God. And as long as there are people on the planet, there are people praying to God, and there is this continuation, night and day, constancy of prayer. Same way that God insists, there has to be a continuation of this incense. Look at chapter 5, verse 8. We've talked about it before. But John sees the four living creatures and the 24 elders who were there before the throne of God. And when he had taken the book, when Christ took the scroll with the seals on it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, 
each one having a harp and golden bowls full of incense. Now you're starting to feel the impact of the incense. Even those around the throne have golden bowls full of incense. And I'm guessing that none of them have made up their own mixture. I'm guessing they're all offering to God the incense that God requires. But look then at what that incense typifies. They have a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song. So what we know now is God has, ever since his dealings, earliest dealings with Israel, as soon as he took them out of Egypt, as soon as he codified them to be his covenant people, immediately he prescribed his worship, how they were to approach him, and he told them that there had to be continual incense before him. And then David likens that incense to his prayers. He says, let my prayers be like incense before you. Let the raising of my hands be like the evening sacrifice before you. So that's the first place where we get a hint of the why of the incense. It typifies the constancy of prayer going up before God. And then sure enough, John is in heaven. And what he sees is the 24 elders and the four living creatures. And they all have harps and golden bowls. In the golden bowls, there is incense. And then it is defined for John, which are the prayers of the saints. And suddenly it all starts to make sense. Why does God expect constant incense before him? Because he expects constant prayer. That was all introduction to get us to verse 3 of Revelation chapter 8. I hope now when you read about the altar of incense in heaven, you have some sense of the history and the importance of it, and you can understand why God, who can have any kind of tabernacle he wants, who can have any kind of furniture around him he wants, suddenly when you see this altar of incense before him, That should now make sense to you, why God would want that in front of him. When the angel came, says Revelation 8, 3, another angel came and he stood at the altar having a golden censer and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. John is seeing this, but John is also Jewish. This is all familiar to him. Not so familiar to us, 21st century Jews, but John, or 21st century Gentiles, but John recognizes what's going on. This is what has been happening in the tabernacle all these years. But what you'll notice is, that the angel is not adding prayers to what's going up before God. What's going up before God, the prayers already exist. We already read about it in chapter 5. Those golden bowls of incense are the prayers of the saints. But in order to keep it going, this angel is given a censer with coals in it, the exact same way that we're told in the Old Testament that the coals had to come from the altar of sacrifice, and then they would use that to burn the incense. He has the coals that are burning inside his censer, and then he's given a lot of incense to add to those coals so that there is this constancy of this smell going up before God, this scent of the prayers of saints rising up to God. And verse 4 tells us the smoke of the incense along with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hands. That means God accepted it. But how did it get there? Here, let me see if I can break it down to brass tacks for a moment. How do your prayers get to God? We just talked about this out of the book of Psalms last Wednesday. How do your prayers get to God? Like, Okay, Kenneth, do you have any right to burst into God's presence and just start yammering on about what you want? 
Do you have any right, Micah, to go to God and tell him how you think things ought to be done? April? I'm going to pick on April now. And, and I seldom pick on April. But do you have any right, April, considering who you are, that you're fleshly? Do you have any right to just burst in front of the God who encases himself in a light that no man approaches? And then you think you can talk to him about stuff? He's high and holy and separate. And then there's you. I didn't mean to be quite so condescending with the you. <laughs> but then there's you. I mean, can you really think that you're going to charge up in front of God and say, let me tell you a few things? No, of course not. How do your prayers get to God, just like every other aspect of your life? When it comes to how do you get to God, regardless of what it is, any aspect of your relationship with God, even your faith in the finished work of Christ, how does it get there? Well, God has to do something in an intercessory fashion in order to get anything about you to himself. Even to get you into his presence for eternity, he had to kill his son. He had to have a sacrifice that was better than the blood of goats and the blood of bulls. But even for you to speak to him, look, you go back to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, when he sees God, says, woe is me because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Woe is me. I am undone. Do you remember what happened next? An angel took a coal from the altar before God. Oh, suddenly we're getting some sense of this altar that sits before God. And an angel took a pair of tongs, which meant they were hot, and took one of the coals and touched Isaiah's lips and said, see, this has touched your lips. Now we have Christ and the constant sacrificial incense that is rising up to God, and we have the Holy Spirit of God interceding on our behalf because, as Paul said, we don't know how to pray as we should. We don't have any idea, and so we come to him, and Paul uses the same language that we saw David use in the Psalms, that God hears our groanings too deep for words and the Holy Spirit takes that to God now we know how now we know what the methodology is now we know that through the incense our prayers rise up to God so that our prayers reach God along with a favorable scent that he has already prescribed for himself this is how our prayers even reach God cleaned up by the Holy Spirit and then brought to God's acceptance through the incense that he prescribed for himself via the method that he prescribed for himself, via the priest that he prescribed for himself. So he has done everything necessary in order to satisfy himself to allow people like Steve to go to him and pray to him. I keep saying absolutely everything necessary for your full, complete salvation, redemption, eternity, is done by God. There's no aspect of it. There's no portion of it where you get to kick in. There's no percentage around the edges that you get to say, yeah, but I did this. Because Adab and Abihu tried that. Let's just improve on God's plan a little bit. And God said, you don't count me as holy. God killed them in their steps so that they couldn't try that again. Because after all, they're the sons of the high priest. If they can get away with it, then people are going to start doing it their way. And we sure see a lot of that going on in the world today. People who have done it their own way, God didn't immediately kill them. Next thing you know, they've got a crowd of followers, and they're all doing it their own way rather than doing it God's way. God started out by saying, this altar of incense is most holy to me. That means that you can't mess with it. You can't change it. It is God's methodology through which he is purifying even your prayers to make them presentable to himself. That's how holy he is. You want to know how holy God is? He has to fix even your words 
to make them approachable to him. And all of that is wrapped up in the altar of incense. So that's what John is seeing. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand and the angel took the censer and he filled it with the fire of the altar and look at what he does with it. The same censer, the exact same censer that he used for incense to send to the nostrils of God that God accepted, he takes that same censer, he goes back to that same altar, he gets more coals from the altar, and he throws them down into the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound the trumpets. There was a lot of people just now shaking their head and looking at me like, whoa, whoa. And that's the right reaction. Because first there's a moment of silence in heaven, kind of setting the stage for what God's preparing to do. And then he gathers the seven angels that stand before him, and he gives them trumpets. And then an angel makes sure that there is sufficient incense on the altar of incense in order for God to continue to accept the prayers of the saints. And at the exact same time, that angel refills his censer with coals off the altar and plunges them into the earth. Can you see the contrast? Those that are accepted by God and God is hearing their prayers because he has arranged a methodology by which he will accept their prayers. And at the same time, he's preparing nothing but bloodshed and war and earthquakes and natural disaster on planet Earth. The exact same God sitting on the exact same throne at the exact same time is pouring out blessings and cursings, which is the way he has presented himself since the very beginning of his introduction of himself to human beings. When he said to Adam and Eve, don't eat it or you'll die, there it was, blessings and cursings. You get everything in the garden. It's all yours. You can have whatever you want. Don't touch that. That's mine. And if you touch it, I'll curse you. They touched it. God cursed them. He brings Israel out of the land of Egypt. He brings them to Mount Sinai. He lays out the law. He says, do it. I'll bless you. I'll take you to the land of milk and honey. I'll take you to the place where I place my name. Don't mess with it. It's mine. Now do my law. They don't do it. God does exactly what he said he was going to do. Starts pouring out the curses. How much longer can it possibly be that the God who has that kind of history is going to continue in his long suffering before he starts doing the very things we're reading here. Because the world cannot go on the way it's going right now. It is self-destructing from the inside right now. And the moral basis has become nothing but continual corruption. And meanwhile, God is sitting on his throne doing whatever pleases him. And that incense of the prayers of the saints is rising up to him, made acceptable by himself. And the day is coming when he's going to say to the angels, blow the trumpets. It's time. And he's completely justified in doing that. Just as holy, just as sovereign, but doing exactly what he's always done. So, you've been told. you got 66 books in the Bible where you've been told. You've been warned. Nobody gets to say, I didn't know when the time comes for God's judgment. Next week, we'll have our communion service on that very happy-go-lucky note that I just... But next week, we will talk about our risen Savior. And boy, talk about the holiness of God. He killed his son 
for us to solve a sin problem that was begun by one man who just didn't do things God's way. That's holy. That's extremely holy. So come back next week and we're going to worship that God together. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.